This is a Serious Sita podcast, episode 6, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to Serious Sita, episode 6. This is the podcast for serious Muslims who love the Messenger of Allah, peace be upon him, and want to discover the beautiful life model he left for us to follow. In today's class, we're going to discuss the following topics. The Prophet makes the call to all the Quraysh. Debates and discussions between the pagans and the Prophet of Allah The Quran becomes more assertive and the Quraysh push back. Responding to so-called contradictions in the Quran. The reasons the Quraysh resisted the message of Islam and the Quraysh began to persecute the weaker Muslims. Stay tuned for Serious Sira episode 6. Having said that, also the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers because in the Hadi Ummatakum, Ummatan Wahida, Wa Anara Bukum Fa'abudun, this Ummah of yours is one Ummah. And I am your Lord, so worship me. So the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims, the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the, the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor. They were one Ummah and they were a Bismillah, Okay, we're going to begin our, I think it's a fifth Sita class. Um, I've lost track. It doesn't matter. We're going to begin our fifth class. We are now in the beginning, the fourth year of the Prophet's mission. Just to quickly, quickly review our last class, we spoke about, in the last class, we spoke about the beginning of the Prophet's mission, we began to give the message to more people outside his outside of his, um, his home. He first gave the message, of course, to Abu Bakr, who's the first person outside of the Prophet's immediate family and immediate household. And from there, uh, Abu Bakr spread the message on to many of uh, the mer- people within the merchant class of Meccan society. And so many of the early companions came from this wealthy merchant class, not necessarily wealthy, but this merchant class of of Mecca and included some wealthy people, including Uthman, Ibn Affan, and Abu Bakr himself. Then we also spoke about how some of the uh, lower parts of society, such as Bilal Ibn Rabah, who was a slave at the time, also came into Islam. And the message was at, at this point in time, in the beginning, there was no outright persecution, there was not much opposition. You know, the, eventually, though, they kept it secret. Eventually, the word did get out that there were this group of people within Mecca practicing this strange new faith but it wasn't really any sort of outright opposition because it wasn't that it wasn't that large of a following and there weren't too many direct challenges to the status quo of mecca we also spoke about some of the early surahs to be to be revealed we spoke about the difference between the uh we spoke about the difference between the mecca and medina verses and we went into some of the you know, different attributes of Mecca Medina verses. And it is important to know that. So as you go on, inshallah, you begin to memorize more surahs. It'll be easier for you to recognize a Mecca and Medina surah. You can also put the the message in each surah in context. And inshallah, that'll hopefully be, be, benefic- be beneficial for you as you go on, go on. 
So this initial period of secrecy was about three years. In the fourth year, however, beginning around the beginning of the fourth year, Prophet Muhammad was ordered to begin to give the message to his immediate kinsfolk and his immediate family. And we get that in Surah Shu'ara, the 26th chapter of the Qur'an. And I'm going to recite some of the verses and you can see how the message that Allah gives Prophet Muhammad kind of gives you a picture of the overall atmosphere of the Muslims and also the disbelievers at this time. And, you know, just listen to the to the verses and to the translation, inshallah. This is chapter 26, uh, verse number 28 through, I'm sorry, verse number 218. What am I saying? Verse number 208 to verse number uh, 216 is okay. Ba'da'udhu billahi minna shaitan rajim. وَمَا أَهْلَكْنَا مِنْ قَرْيَةٍ إِلَّا لَهَا مُنْذِرُونَ ذِكْرًا وَمَا كُنَّا ظَالِمِينَ وَمَا تَنَزَّلَتْ بِهِ الشَّيَاطِينَ وَمَا يَنْبَغِي لَهُمْ وَمَا يَسْتَطِيعُونَ إِنَّهُمْ عَنِ السَّمْعِ لَمَعْزُولُونَ فَلَا تَدْعُوا مَعَ اللَّهِ إِلَهًا آخَرَ فَتَكُونَ مِنَ الْمُعَذِّرُونَ the translation of this starting from verse number 208 of the 26th chapter that's Surah Al-Shu'ara and we did not destroy any city except that it had warners, as a reminder, and never have we been unjust. And the devils have not brought the revelation down. It is not permissible for them, nor would they be able to do that. Indeed, they are removed from hearing it. So do not invoke Allah so do not invoke with Allah another deity and be amongst those who are punished. And warn, O Muhammad, your closest kindred, or your closest family. This is the 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 message of Prophet Muhammad to begin to warn his closest family, his closest tribe. That's chapter 26, verse 214. And lower your wing to those who follow you other believers. And if they disobey you, then say, indeed, I am, dis I am disassociated from what you are doing and rely upon Allah, the exalted and might, the merciful. So we see the message here. It is... Allah is first, he tells, he gives Prophet Muhammad confidence that what he is saying is not com coming from shaitan or from the devils. And also it is a way that he can rebuke those who say that he is being, that he has been possessed or that he's getting whispers from the devils or from the jinn or anything like that. And then it's also a warning or commandment to him to begin to warn his closest kindred, his closest family, basically Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib. So he begins to give the warning to them, and he he made a fam. He invited um his closest uncles from his, from these two uh, clans, Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib, to a dinner. He invited them to a dinner, and he began. And also, Abu Lahab was one of his uncles as well. He was invited also. He began to tell them that he was a messenger, and that tell them about the message that message from from Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. And at first, his uncles were kind of like perplexed and 
didn't really know how to respond except Abu Lahab and Abu Lahab he rebuked him and and mocked him and said that he's wasting their time and called him all sorts of bad names and then basically the dinner ended and then after that there's um I've, in my notes and the different sources I have there a different sequence of events. There were definitely two dinners, and then two dinners in which Prophet Muhammad invited his fa- his uh, family members and spoke to them about the message. And then at some point, he went to Mount Safa and made the call to the entire uh, Quraysh, to the entire city of Mecca. But I've I've seen at least two different versions of it, where either it was a dinner first, and then the call on the mountain, and then another dinner after that, or it was two dinners and then the call to the mountain. Whichever the case, you know, I don't think it's really important whichever one happened first or second or, or last. The point is that he had at least two dinners in which he, he called his family members and tried to convince them of the message. And in the second dinner, whether that second dinner happened before or after the call of Mount Safa, and Allah knows best, during the second dinner, Abu Lahab was also invited. He also went there. Abu Lahab, he, he already knew about Prophet Muhammad's mission and the Prophet Muhammad Hassan was invited him to Islam. And as soon as he began to speak about Islam, Abu Lahab interrupted him and began to rebuke him again and call, and call him all sorts of names and said that he's bringing shame upon the family. He's going to cause trouble for the clan, for the uh, Hashim clan and for, Abdul, for the Abdul Muttalif clan. Abdul, Muta, Abdul, Muttalif, Abdul Muttalif clan. Get my names mixed up. And he began to rebuke him for that. In the second one, however, the second dinner, Abu Talib, his uncle, he did pledge his support to uh, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu He said that he will support him. And he kind of tried to calm uh, Abu Lahab down. And he promised to support him no matter what. But he, he did make it clear that he was not prepared and he was not going to leave the religion of his, of his fathers. And so Abu, Abu Talib, that is, gave him his support, and this gave Prophet Muhammad Sassam confidence to continue the mission and continue spreading the message, but he did make it clear that he was not about to become Muslim anytime soon. So as you mentioned now, the word did get out, and there were people who knew about it, about the message of Islam, and knew the Prophet's mission, and that there's a strange group of people who call themselves Muslims who were not worshipping the idols anymore. But there wasn't any real resistance, no opposition, because you know they weren't really challenging the status quo of Meccan society. At some point, whether this was before or after that second dinner, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did go atop the mountain, Mount Safa, and call out to all the, all the different clans of Quraysh. He called them by their names, oh, Banu Hashim, Banu Fihim, called the different names of the clan. And they came, and then he asked them, we went through this last week, I believe, also. He asked them, am I not a truth person? Do you know that if I told you that there was a, an enemy coming from across this other side of this mountain, would you believe me? And they said, yes, of course, we never know you to tell a lie. He said, well, I am the messenger of Allah, and I come to you with the message of Islam. And he's, he told them about worshiping Allah alone. And most people kind of mocked him or just were, once again, confused at what he was saying, perplexed, and they weren't expecting something like that. Abu Lahab, however, cursed him and once again said, you know, curse Prophet Muhammad and curse his hands and everything. And that's when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down the verse of Surah Al-Lahab. And Allah says, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Tabbat yada abi lahabin wa tabba ma aghna anhu maluhu wa ma kasaba Cursed are the hands of Abu Lahab. Neither his wealth nor his work will benefit him any. And that pretty much sealed the deal for Abu Lahab as far as the hereafter is concerned. Okay. 
Okay, now I mentioned how also uh, Butalib he had confirmed he's going to give the, that he was going to give him his support. Now after uh, Rasulullah Sallallahu began to uh, proclaim the message openly after this meeting on Mount Safa or the call on Mount Safa, he began to proclaim the message openly. It was at this time that Abu Lahab he forced his sons to divorce Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu daughters. We spoke about this in one of the earlier classes how two of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu daughters were married to two of Abu Lahab's sons. But after the message of Islam came and this kind of rivalry happened between the Prophet of Allah and Abu Lahab, in which Abu Lahab would curse him and mock him and call him all sorts of names, that's when you know Abu Lahab made his sons divorce the Prophet's daughters. We begin to see the beginning of opposition here, but at this time, yet still, the beginning of the fourth year of the message of Islam, it still really, really wasn't harsh persecution. There was there was just mockery, really, and even that was kind of toned down. It wasn't harsh persecution where people were being, you know, killed and beaten to death and whipped and everything and all that sort of stuff. That does happen later on in the year, and we'll get to that soon, inshallah. This was also began like a period of a period of debate between the Quraysh and. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad they weren't outright debating, but they were asking questions, you know, asking about how can this be? And if there's this punishment that's coming, why don't you bring, a, bring it across? Why don't you make it happen? And if um, if Allah is, if you are a messenger, why, or if, if Allah is true and if we are, all of our idols are, are, are incorrect, why did Allah send you as a messenger? Why didn't he send someone who was of a higher position than you? Why didn't he send an angel down here? They were asking all these logical questions and trying to, you know, trying to figure things out. And one thing that I've noticed is that even though when we look at these verses, we're going to look at some of the verses, some of the questions that they ask them in just a second. These verses, you might think that this is just, these these verses, I'm sorry, these are questions that the Quraysh asked Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu You might look at them and think that these was just, you know, for this period of time. These are people who had a certain culture and a certain knowledge, and this is the question that they put to Prophet Muhammad Hassan based on their knowledge and based on what they knew at that time. And to a certain extent, that is true. But I've, I look at the arguments that the Quraysh brought to Prophet Muhammad Hassan, you look at the arguments that atheists or people who are against Hassan bring about today. It's the same arguments, really. The same exact things. Maybe a little more technical, maybe a little more refined, but the, essentially many of them are the same arguments. And in fact, I had a, uh, a friend of mine in college, he was, um, we were actually roommates at one point, and he was Muslim. Uh, he was born and raised in a, in, a, in a former Soviet republic, so he was nominally, mus nominally Muslim, but because he had been raised during the end of the Soviet era, Islam had pretty much been crushed by the Soviet regime, and Islam is more like a cultural thing that no one really practiced it because the Soviets you know, promoted atheism. But however, <clears throat> by the time he came over to the United States for school, the uh, Soviets had kind of, well, the USSR had had, a, had a fallen apart. Communism was dead in Russia. And these new satellite states became independent nations. And Kazakhstan was one of them. And he was, uh, when we met in college, you know, we started talking and he knew very little about Islam. He just knew about it from a cultural point of view. But him and I, we started going to the mass here together. And he, eventually began to practice Islam regularly. You know, he began to pray normally and he learned how to pray and all the stuff that Muslims do. Uh, but, however, 
you know, we graduated from school and we both went our separate ways. I moved to Atlanta. He moved to Orlando. And we went out, kind of lost touch until the rise of Facebook. And when Facebook came back around, we got in touch again. And from the messages and the, the way he was talking, the way we were communicating, I could kind of tell that his belief had shifted a little bit, that something was not right. But trying not to really push him, I, I left it alone until he just came out and said something really derogatory about Islam. And I just had to challenge him on that one. And I asked him, are you even Muslim anymore? How can you say this, something like this about Allah and his messenger or about Islam in general? And are you in, and be Muslim? And then he he let, he let me know that at that time he was atheist. He had decided, not quite atheist, agnostic. Uh, agnostic is, he may have went on all the way to atheism now. Who knows? Allah knows best. But the point is that he had left Islam. Agnostic is someone who believes, who they don't actually admit to anything. They don't know for sure. That's what they say. They don't know for sure. They won't say that atheist is someone who absolutely denies the existence of God, period. You know, of, of any sort of God. Agnostic says that... Uh, they don't. They're not really sure, and they won't commit to any any specific belief. But they're pretty much very close to. They're not deism. A deist is someone who believes in God, but that, but doesn't subscribe to a specific religion. An agnostic kind of rejects the existence of the existence of God, but won't come out and say it, and doesn't fully ascribe to it, but won't necessarily reject it completely either. Atheist completely rejects it, but agnostic is much closer to the line of atheism of an atheist than um, a deist is. Totally off point. My, back to my point is the fact that, you know, he was living in Canada, I believe, at the, by the time we reconnected on Facebook, and we began to debate about, you know, Islam in general. And the questions that he'd asked, and it was amazing, these were similar, very, very similar to the exact same questions that the Mushrikun and the Munafikun were, were putting towards Prophet Muhammad Islam. Almost in exact the same exact same way. Actually, I, I think I saved most of that conversation. I see if I can find it, but it was almost the exact same questions that they were bringing up. And it's amazing how Allah knows His creation. That even though the Quraysh and the pagan Quraysh were bringing up these questions to Prophet Muhammad Sallam, and they were pagans who worshipped a whole bunch of different idols, and this is something that even a modern day agnostic or atheist wouldn't do. Here he was, an atheist, bringing up the same exact questions or the same exact things. For instance, uh, one example that he brought up, we talked about, um, okay, he talked about how he had a problem on his road to, to Kufr. He spoke about he had a problem focusing in prayer. And one of the and he says himself, I'm quoting him, I find myself having difficulty concentrating during my prayers. And so I'm going to include a link to the um, to the article in case you're interested. This is really just, you know, interesting talk, but there's a link to the article there. And he's saying how he was having difficulty focusing in prayer. And, you know, there's a quote in the Quran where Allah talks about those who have Allah, in Surah Al-Ma'un, Allah says, Well unto those who pray, yet they are heedless in their prayer. And then he says, if there's a, he, This is my, my former friend speaking. Then there's heaven, which basically is described as a nice country, a nice country house on a good sunny day with fruits and food in abundance, a river nearby and slaves and servants working for you. You don't have to do anything in heaven, just chill. He said, Am I the only one who thinks this is somewhat childish? This is him speaking. And then I brought out a verse from Surah Tawbah where Allah says, Hypocrites are apprehensive unless a sword be revealed about them 
and forming them what is in their hearts, and they and say, mock indeed. And this is him, because he was mocking Islam. He said, Allah says, mock indeed. Allah will expose that which you fear. And he talked about how he, you know, just it's, go, go read the article. I'm not going to go into it. But basically, the questions and, and the things that he brought up were similar to the same thing that the Munafikun and the Mushrikun brought up. And these things are not just set for pagan Arabs of 1,400 years ago. This is a disease in the hearts of the Kuffar that continues on until today, especially the really antagonistic ones who are not just out there just to, you know, people who just don't have a belief in Islam because they weren't raised upon it or because they never heard of it, people who actively pr try to fight against Islam. There's a disease in their hearts that continues on till now. And you'll see the same arguments come up over and over and over again. Uh, if you go to YouTube, look up, I'm not encouraging you to do this, but if you do want to go down that road, you go on YouTube, look up atheist arguments against, you know, creation or against the law or against whatever. And the arguments are similar to the ones that the hypocrites had in the past and the mushrikun, the uh, polities had of the past. Okay, so now we're going to continue on with the Sira. We're going to go on to look at some of the debates that the Quraysh would bring up. One of the th biggest things that they just couldn't wrap their, hands ar their heads around were was being resurrected from the dead. So the Quraysh would bring up these these uh, questions. They would say, so you're saying, this is the Quraysh or the pagans speaking to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu you're saying that when we're dead, when we're bones and dust in the ground, that we will be resurrected again? Is that what you're telling us? And they just say how this is impossible or that we're bones and dust, we're going to be resurrected. It's probably best that we don't be resurrected rather than come back as bones and dust. An example of this is in Surah Al-Waqiyah. Uh, that's a 56th chapter of the Quran in which they say, let me get to it real quick. Okay, in which they say, and reading the Arabic, "Audo bilahi min ashitan rajim." Wa kanu yaqooluna aida mitna wa kunna turaba wa idaman aina lamabuuthun awa abaun alawalun. And they used to say, "When we die and become dust and bones, are we indeed to be resurrected, and our fathers from before as well?" And another example is in Surah Tunazia, when they say, um, if, I see, if I try to do it from memory, I'm going to mess up. So I'm going to try and find the actual quote. And, okay. Yaquluna, a'udhu billahi min ashitan rajim. Yaquluna a'inna la muradadu. Yaquluna a'inna la muradadu duna fil hathirah. أَإِذَا كُنَّا عِظَامًا نَخِرَةً قَالُوا تِلْكَ إِذًا قَرَرَةٌ خَاسِرَةٌ They are saying, will we indeed be returned to our former state, even if we should be decayed bones? They say that would be a losing return. That would be a, um, a useless return. Uh, so basically, once again, just challenging the concept of resurrection in general. They just couldn't really believe in that. They just had a hard time believing res believing in res in resurrection, and Allah answers them in their answers them in their questions about coming back to life and coming back to coming back to life or being resurrected after they after they've died. An example is in chapter ten, verse number thirty one. The reason I bring this these verses up is so that you can see how the Quran and the Sira 
are interlinked. How, you know, when we read, the, you know, we should all be reading Quran at least once a day. So when we read the Quran, whatever we're reading, you can see how all this plays into the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu And so it's very important to understand his life as well as to understand the Quran, as to the Quran in order for us to better understand our religion in general. But just because these things, were, these verses and these questions came up 1,400 years ago, as I said, they're still relevant even now. In chapter 10, verse 31, Allah answers the, the, uh, the disbelievers. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaitan rajim Kul ma'in yarzuqukum min as-sama'i wal-ardi Amma'in yamliku as-sam'a wal-absara Wa ma'in yukhrijul hayya min al-mayyit Min al-mayyit wa yukhrijul mayyit min al-hayyi Wa ma'in yudabbidul amr Fasayakulun allahu faqul afala tattaqun Who provides for you from the heaven and the earth? Or who controls hearing and sight and who brings the living out of the dead and brings the dead out of the, out of the living and who arranges every matter? And they will say, Allah. So say, then will you not fear him? An example how we spoke about before how the Quraysh did actually believe in Allah. You know, they did have a belief in Allah, but they believed they had to use the their idols as intercessors. They didn't believe they could pray to Allah directly. They believed the, the idols that they prayed to took their prayers to Allah or were intercessors between them and Allah. And so that verse shows how Allah answers them that Allah brings the dead from the living and the living from the dead. And so it's not much different for them. And another verse in chapter 30, verse number 19, Allah says, A'udhu billahi min ash-shaitan rajim he brings the living out of the dead and brings the dead out of the living and brings to life the earth after its lifelessness and thus will you be brought out and so Allah is giving an example that every season we see the earth dies so to speak the greenery the the uh the leaves everything turns brown everything pretty much dies the you know everything that's green dies and goes away and fall and then winter but then a few months later Allah brings everything back to life again within a few months and whether it's farming and crops whether even if it's humans we die but Allah you know continues the succession of humans through younger humans or he brings us from from death and the fact that we weren't existing in the first place and then he brings us to life and the fact when we when we were born and then he sends us back to death again. He brings us out of childhood into adulthood and then as we if we live long enough, we'll resort back to childhood, either mentally or physically or both. So in the fact where we'll need someone else to care for us and carry us around and even so much as just clean up clean our own filth from us because we may not be able to if we live that long. Some of us may not even live that long. So it's just Allah showing, giving us signs how everything is cyclical and Allah will continue to bring this thing back back and forth for, as long as, for as, long as, he, as long as he wills. And just like he allows us to die, or to live, we will die, physically die, but he will also bring us back, inshallah, back, don't have to say inshallah, he will bring us back and then he will judge us as well. So there's no, no reason to believe that if he can create us in the first place, no reason why he can't create us in the second place. And so you see that there's this these debates going on between the Prophet Muhammad and the and the Quraysh in this period as they're constantly hitting him with questions. And remember at this time it wasn't outright um opposition to him. It was just 
you know, mockery, disbelief. And some of these questions, you can see how they are kind of mocking Islam and mocking the Quran and mocking the message because they say, oh, we're going to be bones and come back to life again, really? So this is, you can see how they are mocking him. But once again, the real oppression hasn't started yet, but it does begin soon. It begins when Allah begins to reveal verses that directly attack the Meccan status quo. When these verses come, that call into question what they believe. It's not just giving them logical reasons why they should be Muslim, but it's giving them proof against what they currently believe. And when that happens, that's when the attitude of the Quraysh begins to become more antagonistic and much more hostile towards the Prophet and his followers. So, um, and remember that even before you know, the advent of Islam, Mecca was a center for pilgrimage. People were still coming to uh, Mecca to visit the Kaaba on annual pilgrimage, which had been started in the time of Prophet Ibrahim and Ismail alayhim salam. So that was already established there. And so people were already used to coming to Mecca for that. And so they, they but the, however, they were now coming for to worship the idols. And so one of the fears of the Quraysh was that if there were no more idols, if there was only one Lord to worship, one God to worship, they would lose a lot of the business you know, that they received from the annual pilgrimage. You know, how can they have this, I, from their thinking now, they're thinking, how can we continue to sustain ourselves as a city and as an economy if we no longer have the high purpose, the high place that Allah has, or the high place that, you know, Allah did give it to them, the high place that the Meccans and, and that the Quraysh have as a tribe. We mentioned before how the Quraysh were, because of their position in the Arabian Peninsula as the custodians of the Kaaba, their trades and their caravans were protected from much of the difficulty that other uh, tribes had to deal with. They were protected from being looted and being attacked and being uh, robbed on, on these long caravans between Syria, Syria and Yemen. They were protected from all these sort of things because of their position as custodians of the Kaaba. So they began to wonder, now, if they lose this position, because now, you know, people won't be coming because there's only now one one Lord to be worshipped, not 360, you know, they're thinking like accountants, I guess, you know, assuming that if they lose all, all their deities that they were worshipping before, people won't be coming anymore. And so they began to think in this way, we'll lose our position, we'll lose our authority, we won't no longer be the no, most noble tribe in, in Arabia, and, you know, everything will mess up. Not only will they lose the, the economy that comes from the Hajj pilgrimage because people won't be coming anymore, they'll also lose their status and so now their caravans could be attacked along the way so they could see how so many problems from their point of view so many problems will come to them if they were to allow this message message to go through and so they became they became much more hostile when the verse of the Quran became more aggressive against what they believed. we're going to go through some of those verses once again i do this because i believe that understanding the quran is important to understand the sirah and vice versa understanding the sirah is important to understand understanding the quran and they work hand in hand. They, there is really amazing how beautifully the all these aspects of Islam, fiqh and Sirah and the Quran and Tafsir and all these things just all just wonderfully connected. It really is amazing how nothing is really stands on its own. It's all connected, and that's why I want you to understand why you um while you're studying this, inshallah. So Allah begins to reveal these challenging verses. We're going to go through some of them. You can see how. You know, the, the tone of the verses are a little more assertive and a little more challenging, making, you, making people think a little bit more about what they believed. 
This is one from chapter 6, verse 143. That's Sulatul An'am. Audhu Thamaniyata azwaj minad dhanithnaini wa minal ma'azithnain Kul adhakarini haruda ma'imman unthayini amma ishtamalat alayhi arham Alayhi arhamul anthayini Alayhi arhamul unthayini nabbi Nabbi'uni bi'ilmin in kuntum sadiqeen. Probably should have practiced it before I read it. And the translation of that is, There are eight, eight mates of the sheep, two and of the goats too. Say, is it the two males he has forbidden or the two females or that which the wombs of the two females contain? Inform me with knowledge if you should be truthful. Just reading this verse as a, in and of itself, you probably have, you know, it would be very difficult to understand it. Allah knows best. But the reason why this verse was revealed was because the Quraysh had all these superstitions regarding what animals are permissible to eat and what are not permissible to eat. So they're saying that if a cow or if a goat gives birth to two two uh, children at once, then you can't eat one. You can't eat that one. If they give a birth to two children at once and the next one has one, the next one has two, you can't eat this one, you can't eat that one. It was just a really complex set of superstitions that they had. And so this verse here is, con- is asking, well, is two right or is one right? Was one right or is two right? Or should we only have eight or should we only have four? And Allah is challenging them to about these superstitions, these really foolish and needless superstitions that they had. It had nothing to do with any sort of knowledge or any sort of wisdom. These are the just things they made up on their own. And we have these similar superstitions ourselves, not ourselves as Muslims, but in our modern time. For instance, Friday the 13th is considered um, something, you know, bad luck and in most Western countries, the, the number 13 in and of itself is considered bad luck where you can find older buildings that don't have a 13th floor. I mean, I, I, when I was growing up in New York city, I would sometimes have to go to older, some of the older skyscrapers in Midtown and going out, I realized that some of them that had more than say 13 stories, they would have a 12 and a 12 and a half and then go into 14 or something crazy like that, a 12, a and a 12 B and then skip to floor 14. They refuse to have, of 13th floor and this is buildings that were built within the past hundred years when people had planes and ships and cars and all this sort of thing and they have this silly superstition of a 13th floor and it's really that's ridiculous it's really really foolish and so why is 13 unlucky we know why i mean the stories of 13 um the, the 13 compan- uh, disciples of Jesus, something like that. But it's easy to track to try to trace it down. But it's the same foolishness. Why is 13 so unlucky? Why not three? Or you know, there, you, if you look forward, if you look deeper, deep enough into the Bible, you can find all sorts of unlucky numbers. Which brings us. I didn't. I wasn't planning on going to this, but it just sparked my memory. You know, we have people who try to bring the same form of numerology into Islam as well. When there was a time not too long ago where a man named Rashad Khalifa tried to bring forward a, a numerology, numerolo, numerological miracle of the Quran based around the number 19, which is once again kind of foolish because there are so many uh, numbers quoted in, in the Quran about that have, that have so much different significance. Uh, why do you focus on 19? And when you look deeper into his teaching, you saw that he had to play with the verses and ignore certain things or input certain things to make his theory work out. And that created, he created, he eventually went on from there from not just having this bid'ah, because that's really what it was, just a bid'ah, innovation. He went on from there to go ahead and eventually proclaim himself as a prophet of Allah, and then he went on to, to claim himself as God in, incarnate. 
And from you saw how how deep bidah can be. One little bidah led this guy to go completely astray, and all those who followed him. And there's still some of them who follow along now. And from that point, he was eventually assassinated. I think sometime in the late '80s or early '90s. I forgot, but. You know, his followers still exist, though they're not really a significant thing. Mostly exist online, I, I assume. I don't know. I don't know much about them except for uh, what they used to believe and how, you know, much of their talk has been has been proven to be false. But the point of it all is that all these superstitions is just that. It's just superstition. You know, there's no significance in number 19 or 13 or in the Kodesh and all of their weirdness of what what animals they can eat and what animals they can't eat. Another verse in which Allah challenge, cha- challenges uh, challenges the Quraysh, the pagan Quraysh. Chapter 7, verse 194, Allah says, <clears throat> Indeed, those you call upon besides Allah are servants like you. So call upon them. Let them respond to you if you should be truthful. Allah is speaking about the idols that these people are worshipping. These idols that they create with their hands, they're creations of Allah, the servants of Allah, whether they were made from trees or stones. These things are all slaves of Allah that that are subject to Allah's will, to Allah's command. So Allah is telling them that these idols you worship are servants of Allah just like you. They have no power over anything no more than you do. So calling upon them is foolish. We can go on to even people who call upon um, whether it's the messengers of Allah, whether it's Isa alayhi salam or even Prophet Muhammad alayhi salam, there are people who call upon him. And these people, these people, even if they were messengers, they were still just slaves of Allah and just like us. And so they have no more power in our time than we have in our time for anything else. So to call upon Isa or to call upon Prophet Muhammad as besides Allah is shirk and we can't do that so you're going to find people who say it's okay to do that just going to advise you that it's not do the safe thing and call upon Allah only and don't call upon the messenger even Prophet Muhammad don't call upon him uh, only call upon Allah for all your needs so the you know Allah is telling them that these idols that you're worshipping have no more power. And so if you think they can respond to you, then call upon them and let them see how they respond. Call upon them to see what they can do for you uh, if, you, if you're truthful. So this is once again Allah challenging the current belief system of the Quraysh. And also in chapter 16, verse 57, we see how we spoke about before one of the problems with the Quraysh that is that they despise and they hated to have uh, daughters be born to them. Kind of foolish, considering the fact the human species, the human race can't can't keep going without women. So you know, men can't do it on their own. So it's really foolish to even have any hatred towards having a daughter, and not don't have any control over it anyway. It's all in the law's hands. What you know, what gender your child is. So it's really foolish to them to have that. Yet they were really upset when they had daughters. However, though they decided not to, they they decided not to like having daughters. They didn't like having daughters themselves. They were quick to attribute to Allah something which they didn't like. They were quick to say that Allah had that the angels were daughters of Allah. They got this idea because they knew about the idea of angels because they were around. They did have stories of the Ahlul Kitab, the um, uh, the Christians and the Jews, and also there was still some some remnants of the belief system of 
Prophet Ibrahim within their culture. And so they still knew about the angels and all, but they didn't have the correct belief of them. As you can see, they called them the daughters of Allah. Uh, chapter, uh, chapter 16 verse 57 Allah calls him on this and they attribute to Allah daughters exalted is he and for them is what they desire and when one of them is informed of the birth of a female his face becomes dark and he suppresses grief he hides himself from the people because of the ill of which he has been informed should he keep it in humiliation or bury or bury it in the ground unquestionably evil is what they decide so Allah first of all challenges 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 them on the belief that they give Allah something that they, which they do not want for themselves. They give Allah uh, the attribute of having daughters and they don't want daughters themselves. But then he also challenges them on the fact that they despise the fact that they have daughters in the first place. He talks about how they become upset. Their face becomes dark and they, they have to hide their grief or they suppress their grief and they go hiding in humiliation. They ask themselves, should they keep it in humiliation? Should they keep their daughter in humiliation or should they bury it in the ground? Allah says, whatever their decision is, their decision is Allah sa'ama yahkumun, whatever their decision is, it's evil. Whether they, are, they, have humili they feel humiliated because they have a daughter, that's evil because it is, first of all, the carter of Allah. And secondly, there's no reason to be upset about having a daughter anyway. We gotta have daughters. It's common sense. You gotta have daughters at some point. Uh, and so Allah challenged them on that and caused that whatever their decision is, whether they are humiliated by it or they kill the daughter. Remember, at this time, it was an accepted practice to bury their daughters in the in the uh, the newborn daughters in the sand. And sometimes they they didn't do it when they're newborn all the time either. Sometimes they did it after a few years or after they had grown a certain age. So out of humiliation, it really shows you how evil. Bida and Shurik and Git. And you can see this in almost any culture. Um, when people have, have Shurik, it, it just takes the culture way out of hand. I don't want to pick out any specific culture, but I've seen documentaries about different tribes in remote parts of Africa and even in South America. Certain tribes that have these these uh, beliefs of Shurik. And you see the crazy things they do to their bodies and and you know, the crazy belief system that they have just really, really out of the world. They mutilate their bodies and do all sorts of things out of culture, out of belief in idols and stuff like that. It's ridiculous how far Shurda can take and how far Shurda can take them. And another example, I know you've ever read this book, how to read this book in high school, and I guess a lot of other people have to also. I forgot the name of the author called Things Fall Apart. And it's about uh, ancient African society uh, right around the advent when the Europeans first started coming into this the society, and it talks about some of the culture belief, some of the culture beliefs that um, that the Africans had before the Europeans came, and these were pagan Africans, not Muslim Africans. These were pagan Africans. Some of their beliefs were absolutely out of the out of. I mean, they would kill deformed children. They would kill twins, or just take twins, kids who were born as twins, take them out into the wilderness and leave them there to die. And you know, you know they. It was ridiculous how far Shurda could take people away from common sense and righteousness. Allah continues to challenge them in their belief system. Allah says in chapter 
in verse um no that's it okay that's the last of the challenges that i had okay i'm sorry that was the last of the challenge that i had but you can see from these verses that allah brings forth that he's challenging them in their belief system and asking them about the things that they're currently doing not asking them but challenging them the things that they currently are doing the things that they believe and the Quraysh, when this happens now they begin to become more hostile in their approach towards the messenger of allah and the message that he was bringing because now their whole system is bring is coming on them now the whole system is they can see the whole system being challenged and this is called cognitive dissonance i believe when the reality challenges when reality challenges your perception and people have a hard time accepting it you know often I, when i was a uh, younger i don't do this anymore when i was younger i would get into debates with christians about belief now i was challenging on their belief and i could see the cognitive dissonance come in and when they were like you know they couldn't answer the questions i brought to them and so they would just say well it's faith. I leave it up to faith. And they will just throw their hands up. And, you know, that's it. They can't go much further than that. And so you bring this up to anybody. And if you challenge their, their, their belief system, you know, even not just religion, but other things also. You challenge their belief system in politics or anything else. You challenge them, challenge them their, their deeply held beliefs. And you call, cause this thing called cognitive dissonance where reality interrupts with their perception of reality. And they can't bring up a good answer. And so they eventually just have to either just reject you, react violently to your, to your questions or simply say, well, it's a matter of faith and just throw up the hands and leave it at that, which is why you gotta be careful about challenging. I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. You gotta be careful about challenging people based on science with Islam. I mentioned before how, you know, the miracle of the Quran is not the few scientific miracles that you can find it because the science can change. The miracle of the Quran is much, much deeper than that. So be very careful about challenging people on scientific facts alone because people today have a lot of knowledge about science. You know, people have a, a very, you know, deep understanding of science in these days and also information is very easy to receive and easy to obtain. So if you sometimes, you know, we bring things up about science and or people have used science to prove certain parts of the Quran, and oftentimes it's true, but oftentimes it's, you know, science may have shifted or science may have changed, and so it it causes us to have cognitive dissonance. That means the Quran has changed, so now we got to alter our position. So don't be too hardcore about the whole science proves Quran thing. The Quran is proof on its own when you read it and you see how how the miracle of the Quran works and the linguistic miracle and the fact that it's been retained for over a thousand years without any changes how it's been memorized by so many people how you can really destroy every single quran on the planet every cd every uh database every quran on the planet that is currently right now if there's one some way to destroy you can destroy them all we have another one within a couple of minutes well a couple hours but you know because we have so many people have memorized the quran you know it's just an amazing miracle that was not aided by any sort of technology or anything like that, just a miracle of Allah. I mean, that's enough of a miracle in and of itself. But there's so many other things in the Quran, how different parts of the Quran are revealed almost 20 years apart. You know, they still match up. I mean, and this is a time when people couldn't write things down and refer to it. I mean, if you write a book, let's say you're writing a book on anything, you have to keep going back to your notes, keep going back to your notes and make sure that what you write in the later chapters doesn't contradict what you wrote in the first chapter, in the earlier chapters. However, the Quran, you don't have that problem. Nothing contradicts. Everything works together. People may bring up contradictions, but when you actually read the Arabic and you understand it, there is no contradiction. So 
and you hear this stuff, you know, people bring up all this stuff about contradiction in the Quran. There's no contradiction in the Quran. I mean, there's none, none whatsoever. And things change as the state of the people have changed. There are things that have been abrogated, but there's no contradictions. Even with a 50,000 years and a 1,000 year thing, that people, that's the most common contradiction they bring up. But these are terms of a law speaking about two totally different events. One is talking about uh, our judgment and one um, in the, on, on Yom Al-Qiyamah, our judgment by Allah. And the other is talking about the distance of time it takes to travel from the earth to the seven, through the seven heavens and all. So they're talking about two different events. And so they're completely different. So there's no way that's not, that still isn't a contradiction. So these things people bring up, people talk about contradiction to the Quran is false. There are no contradictions. I actively look for them and I look for them up and I try to challenge and I try to, because if I believe this is the truth and I have, I should not have any, any problem looking for uh, contradictions or looking for something that's going to challenge my belief. I, I shouldn't have any problem with it if I'm, if I'm assured that this is, this is the truth. And so I actually look these things up and each and every time I don't see anything. I mean, I don't, it doesn't take a deep understanding or I have to go and look. It's just looking at the context of the verses. There's no contradiction at all. And there's also no contradiction between the Quran and the Sunnah, but that's a different story because you'll see people who, who will hit you on that. And that's something I don't want to get into right now because that takes a long time. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that later, inshallah. All right, so now we see, now we I'm speaking of the, the miracle of the Quran. One last thing. I don't know if I brought this up before, but a couple of weeks ago, I ran across a page where uh, someone who was you know anti-Muslim who was bringing up these trying to bring up these these scientific facts of the Quran that according to him were not scientific facts. And one thing he brought up was how in the Quran it says according to him that um, if in Surah Tartik, he's I'm going to quote the English that he's he said that um Allah says in Surah Tartik that mankind the humans are created from sperm that is emitted from between the backbone and the spine. And according to him, he says that we all know now, at the time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he was saying that people back then, they had the belief that sperm came from the, um, came from between the backbone and the spine. We all know that sperm comes from the testicles. It doesn't, from man's testicles. It doesn't come from the backbone and the spine. He, shows, he talked about how this is a contradiction. The fact is, however, that he didn't explain he didn't read the Arabic of the Quran. The Quran doesn't say sperm. The Quran, Falyang, I'm going to recite the verses. Falyang, Dudan ing, Sanumim, Maholeka, Holekomim, Ma ing, Da Fiaka, Yahrojumim, Baini, Sunbi, Watara, Eber. Now, what that actually is, is Allah saying that. Does not mankind look at what he was created from? Created from despised water, despised fluid. It doesn't say sperm. It says despised fluid. Emitted from between the ribs and the backbone. And that's a rough translation of that because those phrases... Ribs and backbone are English phrases, but it looked, I, when I looked them up, there are so many different things that could actually represent. So ribs and backbone is kind of a loose translation. But actually, as I was saying, it doesn't say sperm. It says water, which is a fluid. And, you know, it says water. And we understand that this most likely means semen, which is only about 5% sperm. The other 95% is a whole bunch of different chemicals. 
but the largest portion that makes up semen that makes up semen is actually uh, comes from a, a, a duct called the seminal duct and goes through the valve. The largest portion is about 60 75 percent is emitted from the seminal duct. The seminal duct is located in the pelvis area of the man, and that is between that is located. The pelvis is of course located between the base of the rib cage, the bottom of the rib cage, and the base of the spine. And that's where the pelvis is located. So it's not that's it's not. It's a mistranslation. First of all, it's not sperm. It is actually, Allah uses the word ma'in, which means water or fluid. And so it's actually fluid. And the majority of that fluid comes from, not from the testicles, from the seminal duct. And Allah knows best. This is one case in which, you know, people can challenge the Quran. You look into it and you see there's no real contradiction at all. All right, continuing on now. And we're getting close to time. Now, continuing on. Now that the Quran was challenging the belief of the Quraysh, they became much more antagonistic against the Muslims and much more hostile. So what they, let's look at real quick, why, what were the reasons why the Quraysh were hostile towards the message of Islam? When you look at it, I mean, they, Prophet Muhammad wasn't asking them to do anything really, really big. He wasn't asking them to give up all their money. He wasn't asking them to make him a king. He wasn't asking them to go to war with anyone. He was really asking them to behave right treat the family correct, and worship one God, worship Allah alone. That's really all he was asking them to do. But there were many reasons, yet despite these fairly simple things to do, they put so much oppression against him and so much resistance against his message. Why would they do that? The first and overall reason is because Islam is the truth, and therefore people will all, there will always be the element of shaitan, the element of evil, that will always fight against the truth. We see it now in the demonization of Islam and some of the things I've just mentioned and also how Muslims are portrayed as these, you know, wild, evil people and how Islam is portrayed as this crazy, violent, violent uh, religion and all this other stuff. We have that problem in and of itself. We also have hypocrites within our midst, people who who deliberately spread misinformation and all this stuff is just part of the plan of shaitan to misguide as many people as possible to, um, you know, away from the truth of Islam towards a hellfire. And he does it in many different ways. So many different ways he does it. But, th so that's the main reason, because Shaitan was working against Islam. He was trying his best to misguide as many people as possible. But there are other reasons that aren't as, you know, I don't know, metaphysical or supernatural as that. Other, more, you know, terrestrial, more common sense reasons. Sorry, not common sense. More understandable basic human reasons one of the reasons is the Quraysh pride the Quraysh did not like the fact that you know their way of doing things that their livelihood that their religion that their belief system was being challenged like that they didn't like their their you know they didn't like this idea that I, that everything that they have done and their father and their father's father and the father's father's father they didn't like the fact that that all these things were being called incorrect that all the stuff they were doing was being called incorrect and misguidance and evil. That hurt their pride and hurt their sense of honor. That's one reason why they uh, resisted the message of Islam. Another reason in, is that they liked a lot of the things that they were doing. They didn't want to give these things up. If you talk to a lot of people who 
may be interested in Islam, they all many times they often say, well, I got to get my life together before I become Muslim. Because they don't want to give up the things that they're doing. <laughs> they don't want to give up drinking alcohol, if that's what they're doing. Talk about nowadays. You know, in the Prophet's time, the message first came out, alcohol wasn't forbidden. But nowadays, you tell people they don't want to give up drinking alcohol. They don't want to, you know, stop having girlfriends or boyfriends, whatever the case may be. They don't want to start covering properly. They're not ready to give up the things that they like. And so they, even though they may consciously and in their hearts know and believe that Islam is the truth, you know, they're not ready to, to uh, change their life around. And the truth is, I mean, whether a person is ready to change their life around or not, they should become Muslim immediately. It is better for a person to be Muslim and have these bad habits and work on them than, you know, say they're going to change their life around later on down the line when, when they've stopped committing sins. That will never happen. We're never going to stop committing sins. You know, become Muslim now. So if you know someone who's having, that, who's having this problem, encourage them to become Muslim now and work on their bad habits later on. I'm sorry, I won't say a bit later on, work on their bad habits as they go along. You know, become Muslim now, that's the most important thing. Accept Islam and begin to do it now. And then, you know, work on your bad habits as you go along in life. Don't, you know, wait until this, you know, imaginary time in the far future when you've become a perfect person because that, that time will never happen. So they didn't, the Quraysh themselves, they didn't want to give up their practices that they liked. They liked adultery. They liked not having to... Uh, restrict their sexual desires to only their wives they like being able to you know have as you know as many women as they as they wanted to have as they could as they could afford or as they could get away with they did not want to give up gambling uh, gambling was something that was eventually forbidden in islam it wasn't forbidden at first but eventually was forbidden they didn't want to give that up they didn't want to give up worshiping their idols they didn't want to give up all the other cultural practices practices that they have that they had that islam forbids so they didn't want to give up certain things Another another reason, which was actually a big reason why they couldn't, why many of them resisted the message of Islam was they didn't like the idea that everybody was equal. The Arabs at that time, the Quraysh at that time, were very, very prideful of their lineage and everything. And especially, they did not like, that, like the idea that slaves were equal to to free people, to free Quraysh. They didn't like that idea at all. They did not want to accept that belief that everybody is, is created equal. And so they... From their point of view, they say, how could everyone be created equal? You have slaves here and you have us noblemen here. How can you say we're all equal? You know, I have freedom to do whatever I want. I have freedom to marry whoever I want and go wherever I want. Well, this person, he's a slave. He can't do anything without his master's permission. You know, his master has complete control over his life. How can you say that we're equal in this? And even though people may have different, be different as far as wealth, freedom of movement, and other parts of life, essentially we are all equal in, in the sight of Allah. We don't really have slavery these days. The closest we have to slavery is U.S. prison system. That's probably the closest thing we have to slavery now. I'm talking about in the United States. I know slavery exists in other countries. I'm talking about the United States and most Western nations. You know, that's the closest we have to slavery. But can you really say that even though the legal status of, of convicts and even ex-convicts is much lower than a free person or a person who's never been convicted of a crime in the United States. An ex-convict has a hard time getting a job. People, when people... You know, sometimes they have to hide the, what they've done because if people hear about it, they may look down upon them. You know, you say, well, I went to jail because I was a drug dealer. You know, that's a, you mentioned that kind of stuff. It's hard to get a job later on in life, even after they've been cleared and they've um, even after they've done their time and so, quote unquote, pay, repay the debt to society. They have a hard time getting a job after that. You know, if someone who is in prison, you know, they are completely restricting their movement. They can't hardly do anything. They can't go anywhere. They're basically wards of the state and the state controls their entire lives. So. 
you can say that from a legal perspective, there's a big difference between someone who is free in society in the United States and someone who is locked up in prison. And, you know, their their constitutional bill of rights and everything are pretty much gone. They have very few very few rights except to probably practice religion, and even that is limited. So you can see how legally, even us, we can we have a, a class society in the United States and other parts of the world. But can you would anyone really say that, you know, inherently there's anything different between a person who's a convict and a person who is not? Is there anything really inherently different? Not at all. You know, there are people who've been committed who've been convicted and put in prison and are much better than other people who are outside on walking free about who are absolutely evil people they just haven't been caught yet or what their evil that they do is not considered evil by society or is not legally evil so you as enough from our point of time, point of view now we can see how this same concept of differences of equality that we can see in you know our daily lives is different than equality as far as on an individual basis as far as in the sight of Allah so the Quraysh had a hard time accepting the belief that slaves were equal to them in the sight of Allah. They have a hard time accepting that, that they'll all be resurrected and they'll all be judged equally by Allah. Another thing that they couldn't, that they really didn't like about Islam is that they didn't want to give up their position to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. To admit that Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was the Prophet of Allah means that they had to obey him. And a lot of the people who were in power just weren't with that. They were not willing to give up their position of power and become subservient, become uh, become obedient to Prophet Muhammad Hassan. They were not ready to do that. They were not going to do that. And that's where much of the opposition came against Prophet Muhammad Hassan was from the chiefs of Quraysh. And another reason is that the old tribal thing where the different parts of the uh, Meccan society were uh, different clans within the Quraysh they had rivalries again with the Hashim clan, the clan of Prophet Muhammad Sassan belonged to. So the um, Bani, Bani Mahzum and uh, Bani Umayyah, these two clans were antagonistic towards the, Prophet, the Prophet's clan of Banu Hashim. And so they saw this, they admitted that people from this clan and some of the most ardent uh, enemies of Islam came from these two clans. Abu Jal came from Bani Mahzum, Abu Sufyan, before he became Muslim, uh, he was from um, Banu Umayyah. So these two and others, one of the biggest problems they had up against against it was that they didn't want the Hashim clan to gain this superiority over them. They believed that if they gave up or if they admitted to Prophet Muhammad SAW being the prophet and that it was correct, that this would give the Hashim clan a leg up over society and over their society and over their clans. So it was really more of a tribal thing for many of them rather than anything about belief or truth or anything like that. So now that the, um, those are just a couple of reasons why the Quraysh, many, many people within the Quraysh were anti antagonistic towards Islam. Now, as the verses became more assertive and more aggressive against the belief of the Quraysh, the Quraysh themselves became more aggressive and hostile towards Prophet Muhammad And so already Abu Talib had mentioned, had already made, declared that he was going to protect his, his, uh, his nephew no matter what. We mentioned that in the, in the beginning, how in that dinner, Abu Talib pledged his support and that he would protect Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu So they couldn't touch Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu They couldn't do anything to him. And so the first thing that they did was they, since they couldn't outwit him with these, you know, fancy questions and 
all this log all the logical arguments, they just went straight to Abu Talib and said, Abu Talib, you gotta shut your you gotta shut your nephew down. You gotta shut him up. You gotta make him stop uh, demeaning our idols and talking about our religion and saying things about our culture. You gotta stop him from doing that. Or if you can't stop him, then remove your protection and let us have at him. Let us do what we want to with him. We can we can stop him if you if you don't want to stop him. But Abu Talib he held he held firm to his to his pledge to protect the Prophet and so he refused to either stop him or to or to um or to remove his protection. Uh, he did try to be sort of like a, a medium between the two. So he would he would go to Prophet Muhammad and and they had he had asked them they had gone through Abu Talib and asked him to present uh, a bunch of you know uh, gifts to him or options to him, you know, to get him to stop saying that, okay, look, if he wants to be our king, tell him that we'll make him our king. You know, if you want to give him money, then we'll go through all the tribes, we'll bring up some money together, and we'll give him all of our, we'll give him all this money. Or if he wants to marry some beautiful woman, if it's something that he wants as a woman, you know, we'll go and we'll let him marry the be most beautiful woman of all the, in all Kodesh. He can choose whatever one she, he wants, and he can marry her. And so Abu Talib brought this message to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu responded with the famous quote we all know if they gave me the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left hand I, could, I would not stop this message I'm paraphrasing it but you know the famous quote and when we went back to them with that you know that kind of shut them down they knew that he couldn't be bought he couldn't be bribed and so now the Quraysh were looking at their options now they couldn't attack him directly Abu Talib wasn't able to do anything to, to st- he was he was they weren't able to move Abu Talib off of his pledge they weren't able to bribe him. And so they went to the next thing, which was to try to stop his message by mocking him or by uh, telling other people that he's crazy or that he's not telling the truth. And this, you know, this would take place during the hot season or the pilgrimage season. And so when people began to come to Mecca for the Hajj pilgrimage, this was a good time for Prophet Muhammad Sallam to go to the people, to the pilgrims, and talk to them about Islam. But when he began to do this, they would the enemies of Islam, mostly Abu Lahab and and Abu Jal, they would do things to distract the listeners. They would either go to the different people directly and say, "Look, you're going to hear about this guy named Muhammad. Look, we don't have anything to do with him. His own people have rejected him. He's crazy. We think he's into magic. We think he's doing this. We doing this. So you know, all sorts of fabricated lies or things about him just to you know convince people otherwise about Prophet Muhammad's character. Just basically to a to assassinate his character, you know what they call character assassination. They say things like, you know, he's he's uh, talking about our our gods. He's talking about our forefathers. He's trying. He's breaking up families. You know, even though this idea of family relationships and respecting and honoring one's elders and forefathers and all that was common throughout most of Arabia, throughout all of Arabia. So there wasn't just so any Arab or any person who came to visit the Kaaba who heard these things would have a low opinion of someone who was doing that sort of thing, and so. They would do they would assassinate his character. Sometimes, or another way that they would do this would be when he would find a group who would be willing to listen to him. They would immediately send like dancing girls or prostitutes or whatever to start singing and dancing and distract the people. So you can you can imagine you got a, a room with a lecture, an Islamic lecture going on, and people are sitting there listening to the lecture. Then you go to another room and turn on MTV or turn on some sort of music video and everything. You can imagine people oh Islamic lecture. Let's go watch this video here. And imagine them going off and leaving the lecture to go listen to the haram stuff. So they, they would do the same thing. People would listen to Prophet Muhammad they'd get the dancing girls and the, the prostitutes and everything to start doing their thing. 
and that would dist- that would get people to leave Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and go look at the girls instead. I mean, that's human nature. They go and look at the girls instead instead of watching instead of listening to what Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had to say. And so these are things they would do to distract him. But once again, the this was the beginning of the persecution of the Muslims starting to get much more intense. But for right now, though, it was mostly just a, a war of words. However, towards the end of this fourth year of the message, they realized that even though they were able to stop some people from, you know, accepting his message and everything, you know, as far as, you know, assassinating his character and all and using the dancing girls and all that kind of stuff. Within Mecca, the message was still spreading. So they knew that they couldn't really, um, they couldn't, they couldn't really assassinate his character because the proof, you know, all the people had to do was really ask further about his character, about his family and everything. And that would help, you know, meet, you know, eliminate some of the negative publicity that they were spreading about him. They couldn't move Abu Talib. They couldn't reason from their perspective. They couldn't reason with him or logically outdo him in any way. They couldn't bribe him. They couldn't attack him. And so they said, well, we can't attack Prophet Muhammad. We can't attack um, some of these more, some of his more prominent companions like Abu Bakr. However, he has all these slaves, all these ex-slaves, all these foreigners who follow him they have no protection. So we can't get him. We're going to go after them. And that's when the persecution got turned up a couple of notches. And that's what we're going to go into next week, inshallah. We'll talk about the beginning of the severe persecution against the weaker elements of Muslim society at that time. At this time, there are only about maybe 130 uh, Muslims or so in this period of time. Some Probably less than 200, somewhere between 130 and 150 uh, people who, who had accepted Islam. And so now the Quraysh turned their attention towards the more, the weaker elements of the Muslims, those who did not have the protection of clans, those who were not from Quraysh and didn't have a family to protect them, those whose family had just abandoned them and said, we're not going to get off my protection, and also the slaves and the ex-slaves. They were the, at the bottom of the rung. They were the, at the bottom of the whole heap of everything. All right, so inshallah, we're going to end it here. Um, my hour's up. Do you have any questions about what happened or what we spoke about so far or about anything going forward, inshallah? No questions. All right. Alhamdulillah. I'm glad you enjoy it. Alhamdulillah. And wa'ayakum. And we'll, inshallah, I know my schedule has been kind of up in the air past couple of weeks, but that will no longer be a problem, at least for until September. Um, don't want to tell you where I work because this goes on YouTube, so I don't want people to know where I work at. But um, I'll put it. I'll put it down here. Basically, my my schedule is pretty much uh, set for my schedule is pretty much set for the season. I mean, these things I I can't help it when these things come up, but it shouldn't be any more problems with the schedule at least until September, and that's pretty much it. So, inshallah, won't be any won't be any more interruptions at least until September. So, does anyone? If you have no more questions, then we can. End it here. All right. All right. Alhamdulillah. Then. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Nashadun la ilaha la anta. Nastaghfiruka. Manutubi lake. Wa yakum. And inshallah, we'll, we'll be back next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.